Good morning. How's everyone? Good to be here. Good news, Jason, wherever Jason is. Good news on Lily. We rejoice with the Moore family for sure. I want to start off this morning. I want to read you a very brief quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're going to dialogue with it a little bit. He says this, The life of discipleship can only be maintained as long as nothing is allowed to come between Christ and ourselves. Neither the law nor personal piety or religion nor even the world. Only by following Christ alone can He preserve a single eye of ours. Thus the heart of the disciple must be set upon Christ alone. You know, when we read a statement like that, it can come across and seem a little bit heavy to the point that it could be a little bit burdensome. So I feel that our goal should be immediately to try to find the joy in this statement. Because that's what we're really looking for. We're looking for the joy to be found in a statement like this, not just the conformity to the truth of the statement, which is true for sure. Have you ever found yourself wondering what it really means to follow Christ alone as a lifestyle. That may seem like an elementary question, but I think it's worthy of thought because we're not just looking for conformity. We're looking for a joyful lifestyle. We're looking for a meaningful lifestyle. We're looking for a fulfilled God-honoring lifestyle, I believe that when it really comes down to it, we as Christians, we as disciples, we're really looking for something that goes way beyond the ability to just implement spiritual disciplines. I think we're really looking for something that goes way beyond the ability to sleep good at night because we've been moral creatures by day. We have many events that have taken place through the course of our lives that have helped to shape and define us. We've went to college, now our vocations are defined by that accomplishment. We then get married, and now we live our lives in a framework defined by the covenant of marriage. Then we have children and now we're defined by new dimensions of responsibility. It's as if we are continually being defined and continually being governed governed by different compartments of life, and it seems like each one of them may have their own needs from us. I believe that the joy of our Christianity can begin to become extinguished when we view following Christ as a compartment of life rather than the whole of life. That's why I really don't like this vertical list that Christians develop, this obligatory list that we look to to kind of determine what's of the greatest priority. You know the list I'm talking about. 
a list that goes something like this. God first, then church, then family, then job, then me. I really struggle with that because I don't really know what should be in third and fourth place. I mean, I know that I have to have a job in order to support my family, but I don't want my job to take up more time than I can give to my family. So I'm struggling with putting that list in its proper order. And the reality is this, to be blatantly honest. There just may be a time when I want to go, when I need to go, and watch my daughter play volleyball instead of going to the men's Bible study that's taking place the same night at the same time. And the reality is, I don't know if that vertical list of priorities helps me sort that type of thing out. I guess I believe this. I believe that Bonhoeffer is saying there is a joy in following Christ alone, but it consists, it reveals itself when we demolish the compartments of our lives and we follow Christ alone in all of life. All of life in relation to my vocation. All of life in relation to governing my family. All of life even in relation to my alone time. I believe that's what he is saying in his own way. The whole of our lives should be defined by one compartment under the banner of discipleship rather than many compartments of which Christianity just happens to be one. I think that's what he's saying. I believe that's what he's saying because of the language that he uses. He singles out the individual, the disciple, and he singles out how that person should live in the context of a discipleship relationship with Christ, which means I am an individual who bears the responsibility to follow Christ in all of life. What's that mean? It means I don't have a vertical list of obligations that I adhere to. It means rather I live on a horizontal plane where Christ is affecting and lording over all of the things that's going on in my life. So, Let's talk about following Christ this morning. But not just following Christ, but the joy of following Christ. Where does a disciple find his joy? Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 4. Let's explore that idea a bit. John chapter 4, verse 27. Through 42. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? or Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought Him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to accomplish His work. 
Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Him, they asked Him to stay with them, and He stayed there two days. And many more believed because of His Word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, we we come to You, God, asking that That, Lord, in the midst of our humanity and our conflicts, our sinfulness, that, God, You would show Yourself in a very clear way to us this day. That, Father, You would reveal to us the need to be consumed with the Gospel. May we, may we feel hope today, God. May we feel purpose. May we feel hopeful. May we know that our labor is not in vain, God. Help us today. Speak to us where we are. Show us the need to be a gospel-centered people. Help us to see the value of the Gospel, the beauty of it, the power behind it, the need to be defined by it, the need to sit under it. So we ask this morning for clarity. We ask this morning that You would again speak to us, deal with us where we are for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to pull two brief principles from this. I shouldn't say brief. That's not true. This, that I sh- that's wrong. I'm sorry. I want to pull two principles from this passage. The first is, where a disciple's pleasure is found. Where a disciple's pleasure is found. And in that idea, we will talk about the centrality of the gospel. Secondly, we're going to talk about where a disciple's pleasure is formed. Where a disciple's pleasure is formed, and in that idea we will talk about the confidence in the gospel. So let's talk about where a disciple's pleasure is found, and let's reread starting in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? 
31 through 34. Let's read that again as well. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I think that we're going to try to discover that there's pleasure found in that idea. We often read this passage and we view it as a template for missions and a template for evangelism. And I want to state from the outset, it is indeed a great template for those two purposes. John chapter 3, we learned that God so loved the world that He loved people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And if that would be the heart of God to reach out to people from all over the world, then that must be the heart of God's people. But for the sake of joy, we don't even use that word must as if to suggest that we're bound to a command or we're bound to the requirement of missions, but rather... We use the word must to suggest that we are affectionately bound to the heart of our God who is at His very core and at His very essence missional. Or, as Vance Hevner stated, the primary qualification for a missionary is not love for souls, as we so often hear, but rather a love for Christ. Or as Roland Allen stated, missionary zeal does not grow out of intellectual beliefs, nor out of theological arguments, but rather out of love. So yes, yes, and yes, this is indeed a template for evangelism and a template for missions, but initially I want to extend an immediate caution. Caution being this, that we would never view evangelism and that we would never view missions as something that is restricted to compartments of our lives. That we would not have a primary view of evangelism or a primary view of missions that would be detached from our everyday lives. I pray this is the caution that we would not view evangelism as something that takes place only at the slotted and scheduled times to be evangelistic. That we would never view missions as something we do annually as we travel to a third world country or as we travel to a neighboring state because they've been struck by a hurricane. This is a typical day in the life of the Savior as He's traveling from point A to point B. The Savior's presence in Samaria is not the result of a demographic study that's been done and it's validated that there's going to be successful ministry in Samaria. That's not why He's there. The Savior's presence in Samaria is the result of one foot in front of the other in day-to-day life and day-to-day travel Uh, as well as not being afraid from other people that are so unlike Him. The Savior's presence 
in Samaria is the result of knowing what it is that brings the Father pleasure. And when Christ knows what brings the Father pleasure, it brings pleasure to the Son as well. So my first suggestion is this. A disciple's pleasure is rooted in the very things. For the sake of our discussion today, I want to make that singular. A disciple's pleasure is rooted in the very central thing that brings God, that brings God pleasure. Remember, we are not talking about compartments of life. We're talking about the central effects of something that affects all aspects of my life. Yes, we're talking about something central that affects evangelism, something central that affects missions. We're talking about something central in place that affects the flow of my marriage. We're talking about something central in place that affects the way that I raise and govern my children. We're talking about something central in place that enables me to have a conversation with a man of a different color. We're talking about something in place that enables me to follow Christ alone and find complete joy rather than just conforming to a standard of life. If you're looking for pleasure, now, <laughs> I'm tempted to say, hey, young people, if you're looking for pleasure, but this is a standard truth for all of us. If you're looking for pleasure, the epitome of pleasure does not require experimentation. If you're looking for pleasure, the epitome, the pinnacle, the height of pleasure is simply found in examining what God's joy is, and what God's pleasures are, and trusting and believing His pleasures to be my pleasures. Jesus said in John fifteen eleven, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. We're talking about the height of emotion here. I believe that one of the reasons that Jesus prayed the way that He did in the garden when He said, Father, if it would be Your will, let this cup pass before Me. I believe that one of the reasons that He prayed that prayer, He knew the height of the emotion behind God's wrath. He, he, he got it. He knew it. If there's another way, why? Because the wrath of God is nothing to be trifled with. So if we're talking about the pinnacle of emotion and the height of joy, listen, there will never be any joy, there will never be any pleasure that can be compared to the joy of Christ. And so Christ says, let my joy be your joy. And not only let my joy be your joy, but I came for the very reason of giving you that joy. He came, He taught and He died to give us that very joy and to enable us to experience that very joy. My suggestion is that the centrality of the Gospel is indeed God's pleasure. Let me be more specific. The centrality of the Gospel is God's pleasure because the centrality of the Gospel is God's will. Let's try to unpack that truth 
and look at the pleasure of God through the life of Christ. Jesus said in verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Now, Jesus says in verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Now, the word that he uses for food in verse 32, it's from a Greek word, brosis, and it's defined as the process of eating. Okay? I think it's important to highlight the fact that the emphasis of that word food, it has an emphasis on the handling of the food rather than the food itself. The emphasis is simply on the food being here, and needing to be transitioned to another location in order to do what food does, nourish and give life. Now, I share that with you because the next time that he uses the word food in verse 34, it's a contrast to the word food that he used in verse 32. Verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. The Greek word is not brosis, but the Greek word is brahma, and it means food in general. Life-giving, life-sustaining. As a matter of fact, it means solid food in contrast with milk. It means true meat in contrast with baby food. It means the nourishment that exists behind a full-course meal rather than what's lacking in a morsel of food. It's as if Jesus is saying, my food, my strength, my life, The centrality of my life is to do the will. The Greek word for will is pleasure. The very source and centrality of my life is to do the pleasure of Him who sent me. So what is God's pleasure? We need to know what God's pleasure is so that we can conform to what God's pleasure is and have pleasure and enjoy ourselves. What's God's pleasure? Matthew 17.5 This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, listen to Him. The word listen means continuous action. It's a suggestion that the gospel is so central in our lives that we spend our lives sitting under its teachings. Yes, Mary, Martha has indeed chosen the greater thing. Sitting, receiving, and learning. That's the centrality of the gospel. We're told in Isaiah 53.10, It pleased the Father to crush the Son. Where's God's pleasure? His pleasure is in the crushing of His Son. The suggestion being that's where God killing His Son and God saving sinners, that's where those two worlds collide. God finds great pleasure in the implementation of the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. Through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God's greatest pleasure was found when He brought the gospel to life and He saved sinners. Let's please understand the totality of what's going on here. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. So know that the pleasure of God was not found in us. We are not saved because He found pleasure in us. He gave us pleasure when He saved us. He made us pleasurable. 
Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.11 and speaks of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That word blessed is translated in the Greek language and it means happy. It is the glorious gospel of the happy God. Why is God happy? Yes, it may be who He is, but God is happy because of the centrality of the glorious gospel. He is well pleased in His Son making atonement for our sins. He is well pleased as He looks over our lives, not necessarily seeing the worth of a man, but seeing the worth of His Son. We so often wonder what God's will is for our lives, and we seek out those details. Listen, do you want to make God happy? Do you care about God finding pleasure in you. If we're seeking out great details, we may be missing what it really is that brings God pleasure. If you want to make God happy, if you want to make God happy in your marriage, if you want to make God happy in your family life, if you want to make God happy in your vocation, if you want to make God happy when you are sitting in front of the TV at 3 a.m. by yourself, if you want God to be happy when you're alone in front of the computer, all we do is make the Gospel central to every area of our lives. Joe Thorne was asked, and understand, what does that mean? Well, we're going to try to talk about that here for a second. Christian author Joe Thorne was asked this question. <clears throat> He was asked by a fellow Christian, is it possible that within the gospel-centered movement, some people are making the main thing, which is the gospel, the only thing? Is that a possibility? Is it a possibility, be, <laughs> is it a possibility that we could be so emphatic about the gospel that we neglect everything else? This is his response. I believe this brother was essentially saying, Look, our people need to know what their hope is before God. This is of first importance. I see the need for the gospel, is what he's saying. But they also need to know how to pray, how to fast, how to love, how to give, how to fight, how to serve. They need to know all of these things. Of course, I agree. With this sentiment, Joe Thorne goes on to say. There are commands to be obeyed. There's wisdom to learn and practice. There's affections to feel and be moved by. But the law itself is unable to create within us new hearts or empower us to obey its demands. So let me say it this way. The gospel is the main thing, but it is not the only thing. However, it is the only thing that brings life. It is the only thing that brings power. It is the only thing that brings transformation. If the gospel isn't everything, it surely does connect to everything. What does that mean in practical life? I think it means this. I think it means I need to teach my daughters how to love. I need to teach them what love means from a biblical perspective. 
I need to teach them who to love. I need to teach them that there are no boundaries or limitations in love. I need to teach them the difference between loving objectively in contrast to loving subjectively. They need to know all of those things. They need to have that information. But I think it's important to note that they can never be taught to love. Just like we can never be taught anything from a scriptural perspective, they can never be taught to love detached from the gospel being incorporated in that teaching. Because that does two grand things. Joe Thorne says, life, power, transformation. The gospel has to be factored and filtered into that teaching because it does two great things. Number one, it empowers them to do what they cannot do on their own. Talk about loving an enemy. That's a tall order. It's such a tall order that it is not in my daughters, nor is it in me, nor is it in you, to love someone to that degree on our own strength. But there's another great thing that the gospel does that is transforming and powerful and gives life. It relieves them from guilt when they fail to love unconditionally. When they fail to meet that command, and I sit down with my daughters and I say, hey, listen, we blew it this time, but guess what? God is not angry at you. You blew it this time, but God does not reject you. God does not not love you. You are fully His. You are fully loved because God is not looking to a righteousness of your own. He's looking at the righteousness of His Son. The centrality of the gospel is God's pleasure because the centrality of the gospel is God glorifying. Turn to chapter 6 real quick. Let's look at verse 26. Starting in verse 26. The gospel glorifies God. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. You're not going to get it on your own. The Son of Man's going to give it to you. If you get it, the Son of Man is going to give it. You're not going to earn it. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. They said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered him. This is the work of God. You want to know what the work of God is? This is it. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. Now I want you to notice the connection between John 6 and John 4. John 6.29 This is the work of God that you believe in Him who, had, who He has sent. Believe in someone other than yourself. Now look in John 4.39-42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So Christ is even further defining what His work is and what brings God greater pleasure. He's a handler of the gospel. God's pleasure for the gospel is central because belief from man is essential. God's pleasure for the gospel is central because belief is essential. God's pleasure for the gospel is central because the gospel is God-glorifying in the sense that it causes us to look to Him. It causes us to have belief in Him. It causes us to seek trust in Him. It causes us to have hope in Him. What's the alternative? Hope in ourselves. That's the alternative. And that's where we find ourselves camping so often, wondering what we can do, how we can do it, in order to make it through this messy thing called life. Isn't that really the temptation of the woman at the well? Sir, what must I do? Where must I go? Tell me what I personally need to do in order to have living water. Listen, ma'am, there is no well that you can go to. There is not enough water that you can draw from this well or any other well on the face of the earth to earn living water. The only thing that you can do is look at Christ, believe that He is living water, and then receive that living water for yourself. Isn't that the temptation of the people to trust in themselves? Rabbi, Tell us what kind of work we can do in order to receive this bread of life. Tell me the type of work I need to do so that I can receive this bread from heaven. Listen, there is not enough work that you can ever do. There is not enough hours in a day and your life's earnings would be the beginning of an insult to the reality that there is not one thing that you can do to earn God's favor. There is not one thing that you can do to earn this bread of life. The only thing that you can do is simply stand there and believe that your life's sustenance comes from another. You've got to believe on Him who sent Him. That's it. What can I do? You can't do anything. You can do nothing. And that reality... When we submit to that reality, when we conform to that reality, I assure you brings grand pleasure to the Father. As we go through this marriage study on Wednesday nights, it's exciting. I'm excited about it. Hey, my daughters are leaving notes all over the house. Dad, you're awesome. Hey, we love you. And Yes, this is good stuff. And I'm thankful for the practical applications. But let me tell you what our greatest need is in marriage. Greatest need in marriage is realizing... <laughs> so I, can come to, I can come to marriage class on Wednesday night, fight with my wife on the way home, trying to insert practical application. The greatest need is to realize, I can't do this. I need someone other than myself. 
I need something other than myself to enable me. I need something other than myself to press me to move forward by not causing me to feel this, this load and weight of guilt when I do blow it. That's our greatest need. To be able to believe in something so much that we recognize it as the central thing that's far more superior than our own efforts. We need the centrality of the Gospel in our marriages. Look, if you want a fruitful marriage, look to the cross, run to the cross, run to that place where Christ not only died to free you from sin's bondage, but died to free us from the ongoing dominion of sin. Go to that place where Christ can enable us to change and go to that place where Christ frees us from guilt when we fail to change and what that does is spur us on to continue to try to change. Yeah, there's a thing in this marriage study we're doing called the crazy cycle, but I think there's another cycle involved too. We receive grace, we try harder. We receive grace, we know we're sinners, and we press on. I believe that's a cycle all in itself. When? The Gospel is central. Rick Thomas states, Christ pleases God. Anything that the Son does pleases the Father. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and He completed that task perfectly. The Father received the finished work of the Son, and now a way has been made for us to please the Father. How? By accepting the Son's work. A Christian who is living by faith in the works of the Son, that's a Christian that's pleasing God. Pleasing God is not about what we do, but pleasing God is rather about believing in the only one who could authentically please the Father. Even on our best day, with our best works, we would not be acceptable to God. That's why we need the centrality of the Gospel to remind us of that and spur us on. Beautiful, grand thing. Lastly, quickly, <clears throat> I want to talk to you about where a disciple's pleasure is formed. Let's back up to verse 35 or move forward to verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest now. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Notice that there is, and I believe it's a necessary progression of sight. First thing he says in verse 35 is, look. Look at that with me. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Then he says, look. Then he says, wait a minute, I tell you, do more than that. Lift up your eyes. There's a way that we can look at our circumstances. There's a way we can look at our life. Christ is saying, look up to something that is higher than yourself 
and truly see. The Greek word for look, the first one we see in verse 35, the Greek word for look means to see. The Greek word for see, after we've lifted up our eyes, means to view attentively. It means contemplation. And it also means a level of anticipation. We're sowers of the seed of the gospel. Prayerfully, by God's grace, we're sowing seeds of the gospel in the hearts of our children. And it's very easy to come to a place in life, and it's a place where I feel that I'm close to being, if not there altogether. Your children are a few blinks away from adulthood, and you're wondering, have I sown right? God, have I sown enough? Have I sown with love? Have I sown with a heavy hand? And you can find yourself feeling guilt, shame, wondering how you've sown. God, have I done this thing the right way? We're going to need to have confidence in something here. And I think that that's the motivation behind Christ saying, listen, lift up your eyes from what you think you see and look to something bigger than what you see. What is it? We're sowers of the seed of the gospel. We sow the seed of the gospel in the hearts of others. It's easy to come to a place where we're burdened because we feel like, you know what, I've been sharing the gospel with my brother for years and he's just not responding. But sharing the gospel with dad, man, for the last five years and he has no more interest of the gospel than he does to walk across hot coals. We're sowers of the seed of the gospel prayerfully in our marriages. And it's easy to come to a place where we look at our marriages and we say, is there any hope at all for any type of change? And Jesus says, listen, lift up your eyes from what you see, from what you think you see, and view something different and better and greater than yourself. Look to the gospel. The question is, as I try to answer this dilemma of what I've done wrong, what I've done right, what I can trust in, where I feel like I'm failing and faltering and worrying and being anxious. The question is, is the seed of the gospel faithfully being sown in my marriage? The seed of the gospel faithfully being sown in the lives of my children and my other relationships. Yes, yes, Jesus Christ is informing the disciples that they are reapers, because of the labor of others, they're entering into the labor of other people, they're entering into the labor of the prophets, they're entering into the labor possibly of John the Baptist, but specifically they're entering into the labor of Christ Himself and this woman who's went and sown seed in other directions. So yes, that is true. But the principle that I really want to try to highlight for us, for our application, is that there is hope when the seed of the gospel is faithfully being sown into the lives of our family and our marriages and our children and our friends. There's hope. There's hope. Regardless of what we think we see. Norma McCorvey was the famous plaintiff in the infamous Supreme Court case of Roe v. Wade in 1970. She says this of herself. <clears throat> I could outcuss the most crass of men and women. I could outdrink many of the Dallas Tavern's regulars. And I was known for my hot 
temper. When pro-lifers called me a murderer, I called them worse. When people held up signs of aborted fetuses, I spit in their face. My life was inextricably tied up with abortion. Though I had never had one, it was the sun around which my life orbited. I once told a reporter, this issue is the one and only thing that I live for. I live, I eat, I breathe, and I think everything about this issue. It's my life. During one confrontation, I charged up to a woman who was holding a picket sign and demanded that she move. No, I'm not moving. She responded. I called her every name that I could think of, which was usually enough to make the toughest protesters wilt, but she maintained her composure. When I saw that she wouldn't budge, I spit in her face. She smiled. I was furious. How dare you look at me like that? I screamed. How dare you smile at me? She politely wiped the spit off of her face with her sleeve and said, Christ loves you. So do I. And I forgive you. It would have taken several clinic workers to pull me away from her, except that I suddenly experienced severe chest pains and had to remove myself from the scene to catch my breath. Norma McCorvey is a representation of the mindset of so many acquaintances that you and I have. She's a representation of our employer, or maybe our employees. She's a representation of some of our parents. She's a representation of some of our children, perhaps. She's a representation of some of our siblings. She's a representation of perhaps some people that are sitting right here, right now, and we want her to change, and we become angry when she doesn't change, and we begin to judge when she doesn't change, but she cannot change unless the seed of the gospel is sown in her life. And we encounter her on a day-to-day basis. She is the woman that advocates abortion, and she is our neighbor. She is the woman of a different skin color, of a different socioeconomic class, and we shy away from those differences because we're afraid that we may be invited out to lunch by her. Norma McVeigh worked at an abortion clinic. A pro-life group came in and they moved into the office next door. She began to be befriended by a woman by the name of Rhonda, but more importantly, and more of an influence, she began to build a relationship with a seven-year-old little girl by the name of Emily, who was Rhonda's daughter. Rhonda almost had an abortion, but decided to keep Emily. Emily would continue to run up to her and hug her and say, I love you. Emily would continue to tell her that she's praying for her. Emily would continue to tell her that God can save her. She had a full awareness of what it was that she was doing. So much so that that Norma felt the need to say, listen, I love kids. And the little girls would say, well, then why are you supportive of of their killing? In a seven-year-old way. Continued to just love her. You know what she was really doing? She was planting and sowing seed to a large degree. Let's pick up from her own words, Norma's own words. Finally, I said yes. 
I didn't agree to go to church out of a sudden need for God in my life. I just grew tired of telling Emily no. So I said yes. Her mother Rhonda was skeptical. Norma in church? But when they came to pick me up, I was dressed and I was ready to go. The pastor ended his sermon with a compelling evangelistic call from John 3.16 asking, Is there anyone here tired of living a sinner's life? Immediately, I felt overwhelmed with a need to respond. How could I say no? I had been tired of it for years, but it was the only life I'd ever knew. And unless the seed of the gospel had been sown, it would still be the only life that she had ever known. I walked forward, leaning heavily on my friend Rhonda for support. As I knelt down in the presence of Christ, I felt incredibly sorry for all of my sins, especially my role in legalizing abortion. And I just kept repeating over and over and over. I just want to undo all the evil that I've done in this world. God, I am so sorry. And as far as abortion is concerned, I just wanted to undo it. I just wanted it all to go away. When my conversion became public knowledge, I spoke openly to reporters about still supporting legalized abortion in the first trimester. The media was quick to use this to downplay the seriousness of my conversion. But a few weeks after my conversion, I was sitting in the pro-life group's office when I noticed a fetal development poster. The progression was so obvious. God revealed truth to me. I ran outside and finally it dawned on me. It's as if blinders just fell off my eyes and I suddenly understood the truth. That is a baby. That is a life. I felt crushed under the truth of that realization. All these years, I was wrong. Signing that affidavit, I was wrong. Working in a pro-choice clinic, I was wrong. No more of this first trimester, second trimester, third trimester stuff. Abortion at any point was wrong. And it was so clear, so painfully clear. A little girl sowed the seed of the gospel. And I believe that Jesus is saying, listen, our temptation is to say, hey, look, yeah, we're looking, we're looking at things one way. And the expectation is, I plant a seed, four, four months later the harvest comes. Okay, yeah, I know that that's the way that things normally work. But Christ calls us to lift up, look up and see. And the reality is, Christ can be the sower and the reaper at the same time. We can be the sower of the seed, and Christ can reap that harvest instantaneously, or maybe it will be a little while, but the reality is a little girl sowed a seed, and an adult man became the reaper of this harvest in relation to this woman's life. But it took the sowing of the seed of the gospel. I don't know exactly where you are. Exactly maybe what your struggles are. Marital, relational. And we want to know, what do we do about it? But we also want to know, where do I find joy in trying to live this thing out called the Christian life? Jesus is handling the gospel. He's celebrating it. He's speaking it to a lost woman. He's speaking it to those that He's intimate with. 
He's speaking it to a mass group of people that are heading his way. He's living his life being a handler of the gospel. If you want joy in your life, if you want to know where your pleasure is to be found, it will come when the gospel is central. When we have a place to run to and say, I can't do it. But the power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection can. I can't do it, and I don't want to feel guilty for not doing it. The power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection frees us from guilt and shame. That's our need. That's when we'll find pleasure. That's where we'll find our joy. I ask if you would to bow your heads with me, please. And you know what? Maybe just let's for a brief moment just reflect on our lives. Let's, you know, listen, I think this marriage course is a huge task for us in a good way. Loving, respecting, it's huge, life-changing. And I don't just mean that on an individual basis. I think a church-wide level, it's life-changing. As we as we seek to be the families God calls us to be. And when I seek to be in the context of a marriage, the man that God's calling me to be, my daughters are served in that. So let's just reflect on our marriages. Let's, let's reflect on where we're lacking where our failures are. Not, not to be condemned. The Gospel doesn't do that. But to know what part of my life is lacking so God I can run to the Gospel truth and its principle and its application in my life in this area. I'm angry. The Gospel gives peace to my soul. It confronts that. I'm anxious in my marriage. The Gospel gives me a peace that surpasses understanding, good measure, pressed down and overflowing. Wherever I'm at, wherever my dilemma is, the gospel is an antidote for that dilemma. Where, where's my marriage? Where's my family? Where's my children? What's central? What's not central? Can we just ponder on that briefly? Can we take that before the Lord briefly? And can I offer you through God's Word the solution of relying on and leaning on the power of the Gospel to change you where you are right now? God, as we reflect on Your Word, yeah, we noticed that this woman, she left her water pot behind. What she was previously running from, she forgot, and she went to the very people that she was initially running from. The truth of the Gospel so much outshines the shame of our sin, God. And so, Father, would You 
Would you remind us that we are worthy, not because of our worth, but the worth of Christ placed over our lives. You made us worthy. You've called us to see in a different way. You've called us to look to something that's better than us. You've called us to look at the finished work of Christ. You've called us to look to that place where God, You revealed Yourself to us in a way that when we were yet sinners and we were deserving of Your very wrath, Your very judgment, that God, You stepped into our life and You gave us Your Son and You revealed Your Son to us and You've set us in a right standing before You. And God, I pray that we would see the joy of that and we would rely on the truth of that and the principle of that and the power of that. Yeah, it's all about Your Son. You're well-pleased, Father, with Your Son. Be well-pleased with us as we believe Your Son. And help us to apply the truth of the Gospel to our lives where we are right now. In Jesus' name.